Very good. Good morning, church. How we doing? I'm glad to be here. Some cars are glad to be here. Someone out there. And uh, if you're joining us for our series, we are wrapping up one called The Call of the King. And uh, we've been looking at for the last couple months that I've been preaching, what kind of priority are we giving to Jesus Christ in our lives? Not with words, but in a consideration of how much is Jesus the center of who you are and what you are about. So it does my heart good to see little people in Sunday school. I have missed that. And so uh, I left my adult class a little bit early. You can clap for that. Praise God. It has been a long haul that we have not had something specifically for our kids. And uh, what an important part of the discipleship that we do is raising our young people and uh, in fear and knowledge and love of the Lord especially. So we are continuing this series, and we are asking a question this last couple weeks. Let me turn my screen here. If you really wanted to take King Jesus' calling more seriously, if you really wanted to go for broke, so to speak, what do you need to do? What are some of the steps that you need to take to get serious about Jesus? Well, first of all, whenever you move toward taking Jesus more serious, you need to uh, realize that you face significant resistance. We know that just by experience and try, by trying to change and trying to change in our own power. The primary place that we have to do battle whenever we try to move toward Christ, uh, the resistance that we face, the primary place of resistance is our own heart. And uh, I know best. I know best what I want. I can take care of this myself. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, that is a temptation. Change is hard because change means there are probably habits to break, habits to form, things that we need to stop doing, things that we need to start doing. And it moves us away from this comfortable place of business as usual. We are a people and a culture who love business as usual. If I can just drift into it, uh, feeding my face and comforting and pleasuring myself, that is the trajectory that we naturally want to flow in. All about, hey, it's the Calvin show or whatever the show is. You feel your name in there. I know it's not all the Calvin show. My mom tells me that. So a lot of us, we know that there are things in our lives we need to change. Do you know of things in your life you need to change? Things that you would like to change? Whether you're 10 or 98 or whatever. Things that you want to change. We, we say in theory, yes, I want to change. But when it comes to making plans, when it comes to the hard work, when it comes to the disruption of what change means when it comes to uh, the pain of change. Really, what we, we say we want change, but what we want is relief a lot of times. We just want whatever it is that we're doing to suddenly start magically working and all of our problems just go away. Instead of taking steps to actually concretely move in a direction of change, instead of making plans to change, instead of going after it with all of our will, 
Instead, we sit back passive, waiting for, a div- uh, waiting for this divine whammy, a lightning bolt from heaven to just suddenly make all of our problems magically go away instead of taking real steps toward grace. And I'm not talking about works righteousness. I'm not. I'm talking about a heart responding in love and moving in love with intentionality toward our Lord and Savior. So if you want to change something in your life, you got heart battles you got to fight. That's just the way it is. And the primary means that the Lord gives us to fight heart battles is prayer. In order to change, you have to be a person of prayer. You have to pray a lot of times for the desire to change. You have to learn how to pray honestly. Do you ever, you ever to pray, like if you're dealing with a habit of ingrained sin, have you ever had the prayer that says, Lord Jesus, I know you said I, I shouldn't do this, but I want this more than you right now, and I'm not going to stop, and I'm going to take care of myself, and what you say, even though I know it's true, it doesn't matter. Have you thought to include the Lord in your life at that level? Uh, just holding all of our dirty laundry out with him, talking about him with him. And it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but the truth is, when we can get honest and when we can begin to make concrete steps, uh, we wrestle in prayer with the desire, the heart work needs to be done in prayer to allow us to have a will that's formed that we begin to take steps with our real life. And so don't just leave it as pretty words in a prayer. Apply those, those concrete ideas of change to your real life. So as you're looking at making plans, planning is essential for making change. I think there was a U.S. general who said something along the lines, I don't know, MacArthur or who was, but he said, I've always found uh, plans to be useless, but planning to be indispensable. And I think maybe there is a little bit of truth to that. Uh, We make plans toward the one we talked about last week was simplicity, becoming simple, simplicity of heart. So uh, what Jesus talks about when he talks about simplicity, uh, it comes back to this 633 verse from Matthew's gospel. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's your one thing. Soaring Kierkegaard, purity of heart is to will one thing, that one thing for him is the kingdom of God and his form of righteousness. And then when you put that there as the heart of simplicity, if that is the truth of your life, all your other questions are answered. All of your yeses, all of your noes come from that reality of God and his kingdom in your heart, the center of your heart at truth, in truth. So if you get simplicity of heart, simplicity of heart will always express itself in external simplicity. Uh, part of the planning that we do in simplicity is coming up ways, with ways to ruthlessly eliminate distractions that are going to keep us and hinder us from going all in for Jesus. We notice what those roadblocks are, the sin, the noise, the distraction, It's not that we're like so much involved in sin, explicit sin a lot of times. 
a lot of times our lack of simplicity of heart just expresses itself in lethargic living, laziness, just kind of going with the flow of whatever without intentionality. And uh, that is one of the things that simplicity actually helps us fight against. So you get simplicity of heart, it answers the question of uh, simplicity in your lifestyle. And it'll show up in your shopping habits, in the way you spend, in the way you give, the clutter of your life. Simplicity of heart begins to answer all of those external things. And one important way, uh, one important way that simplicity helps us is that if Jesus Christ really is at the center of your being, if he's really in your heart and in, in truth, uh, then what people think about you, what they say about you, what you imagine people are thinking about you or saying about you, the whispers in the dark that you imagine people have, all that becomes secondary. All that becomes secondary. And what a beautiful thing that is because so many people in this world are slaves to imagined thoughts of things they imagine other people are thinking or saying. And so we looked at last week this idea of approval addiction. If we find ourselves often getting hurt by what other people say about us, by people expressing anything but glowing opinions about it, about us, we probably have it. Number two, if we habitually compare ourselves with other people, if we find ourselves getting competitive in the most ordinary situations, we probably have it, approval addiction. If we live with a nagging sense that we are not important enough or special enough, or we get envious from another success, we probably have it. If we keep trying to impress important people, we probably have it. And that's just a few ways that it is expressed. So the Apostle Paul was so grounded with Jesus Christ at the center of his being. Out of that kind of grounding and a surety of his identity in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, he writes these powerful, powerful words, a lot of places, but most especially, I find that's true in Romans chapter 8. And it's, these are just amazing words of an identity that's grounded in Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to go through and read some excerpts from the 8th chapter of Romans. There is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Jesus Christ is my one thing. All those other voices out there, they are secondary. I'm not saying we don't have to deal with them. I'm not saying sometimes there are criticisms we have to weigh. I'm not saying you don't have changes to be made, uh, be making in your life. I'm saying when you get grounded in this reality of your lover, as Jesus' lover, as, as a beloved child of God, when you live from that reality, all these other voices are periphery. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then nothing in all of creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that. You cling to that. You make that the center reality of your life, and you will be free in a way that this world just thinks it's impossible. It's just, they think it's not even reality. So Romans 8, these are words of freedom. They are words of freedom. Because of inner simplicity in seeking the kingdom of God first, because of that reality, I don't have to be clamoring incessantly for attention. Pay attention to me. Look, ooh, it's the Calvin show. My mood isn't dependent on receiving praise and applause. How many of that are, are, I mean, that's, maybe it's because I'm the guy who's actually up front here every week. You guys say some really nice things to me, and sometimes some not so nice, <laughs> every once in a while, to get my act together, right? Uh, and sometimes my heart is more affected by that than it needs to be or it should be. Uh, receiving praise, affirmation, attaboys, applause, when we look to Jesus Christ for that, we have strength and freedom that is a mystery to this world. So some of these tools that I'm talking about of making plans, uh, they include things like uh, simplicity, simplicity of heart. If you, need to, if you want to take Jesus more uh, uh, seriously in your life, you need to get simple, and you need to be intentional about it. But today I want to talk about some other tools in the tool bag for us um, in order to truly grow in Christ-likeness. So today the tools I'm talking about are a couple dirty words to us in the church, confession and repentance. And you hear me up here. I say confession and repentance are not the burden that we've typically made them out to be. They are, in fact, a beautiful gift available to us that not very many of us take advantage of. And then, so we're going to talk about confession and repentance, and then to close this morning, I want to talk about your responsibility as a priest of God. Your responsibility as a priest of God, as, a, as someone serving under the great high priest, as a part of the royal priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, to use language from uh, 1 Peter. So I spent this some time this last week considering this question, and I looked for sources and help. So I, again, was looking at uh, uh, Chris Hall's, one of my teachers' foundation series, was very helpful to me, and uh, I based this sermon on a lot of what he said. And then also this uh, devotional classics that I've been looking at. Uh, it was edited some years back. It's not a current book. Richard Foster and a guy named uh, Brian, James Brian Smith who are these writers on the spiritual life? What they're bringing, though, in that is just Christian voices of saints throughout history. Uh, and so there, I, the question I bring to it is, if you really want to change, what are the steps that you need to take uh, in order for that change to take place? So, and, and the, great, the great coaches of Christianity, the great teachers in history— you know, they're often very flawed people. There's some flaws that are serious in these guys I'm going to talk to you about this morning. Uh, 
And yet, the Lord uses some of what they're saying and the wisdom that they obtained over the course of many years and the life that they were living to produce some beautiful fruit. So a great coach of the spiritual life is a guy named John Chrysostom, or the Golden Tongue. And look how long ago this guy lived. Uh, He was an early uh, uh, bishop in Constantinople, and uh, he was exiled for telling, you know, the empress, this is the way it is, and not mincing words, and not tiptoeing around the imperial court. Uh, He spent years, he was so serious about his faith, he went to, uh, I think, somewhere in Sinai or or Antioch, I can't remember where, but he spent years in the desert uh, learning from desert spirituality. And just all of this fruit of this lifetime of trying to become more like Jesus Christ comes to uh, the surface in his life. And so he has some wonderful advice that he gives for people who are trying to figure out dealing with habitual sin dealing with habitual sin. These are the ones that we've given ourselves over. These are the ones that keep happening again and again. again. So he says this, and how can I go back again? Isn't that a struggle for us? How can I go back again? Do you ever get discouraged dealing with your sin? Especially those ones that keep happening over and over and over and over again how can I go back again after I've failed so many times? Of course, the temptation is, and this becomes the worst sin, is that uh, we are tempted to stop coming back. We are tempted to stop repenting, stop confessing, stop sharing, uh, to have that embarrassment to face again of the old man I'm dragging around behind me. How can I come back again He says, start by avoiding vice, by going no farther into it. So a first step that he gives is this. You stop going farther into it. So it's interesting, when you're dealing with habitual sin, you're probably not going to be able to stop doing the particular vice all by yourself and all at once. But resolve not to give yourself up to it. Resolve not to go further into it. So if you're dealing with uh, a vice of lust and you're feeding that vice with pornography, stop adding new content. you got enough trash in your mind already. You don't add to it. And then he says this. Oops. So somewhere I lost my slides there. When a person who is sick, they got deleted out of it or something, so something changed. When a person who is sick go, gets, does not get any worse, it is a sign that he's getting better, Chrysostom says. When a person does not get worse, it's a sign that he's getting better. Go no further, and your deeds of wickedness, they will have an end. So say that you have an deeply ingrained habit of sin that's troubling you. By not going further into it, you're beginning to learn how to fight against it. You're beginning to make patterns, and uh, you're changing up the game plan, so to speak, because our habits of sin are just that. They're habits. There are certain triggers. There are certain things that come, situations. You get wise about what, what, are, my, what are my triggers, 
Is it a time, a certain time? Is it uh, a certain circumstance that I come? And you begin to learn how to fight your sin upstream, so to speak. Uh, before it becomes an inevitable, inevitable action, it is always an idea that starts in our minds. I want this. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to do this. So then, and finally, the second thing, or the, the fourth thing that he said, I don't know what happened to those slides. They were there. They're gone. If you do so for two days, and then you keep off the third day, that third day it'll be more easy. Are you starting? You see, when you, you begin to make steps to fight against these habits, what you're doing is you're beginning to form new habits, and you're beginning to become stronger because you're learning how to resist. And the temptation is that, oh, it happens after three days. Well, I just can't. I tried, and I give up. Now, John, John Chrysostom says, no, no, no. If you can keep off for one day, you just get up and you start again. If you can keep off for one day, you can do so for two days. And then you will keep off the third more easily. A new habit is forming. And after three days, you will add 10, then 20, then 100, and then your whole life. Your whole life. By beginning to take these small steps and refusing to give up and give in on the fight. So he's a great coach for those people who are trying to defeat habitual sin. See, a lot of our, our healing comes progressively over the course of time. And instead of beating yourself up over, I'm such a filthy such and such or so and so, be a little more gentle with yourself. And instead of focusing on your failure, focus on Jesus Christ and his beauty. There is power there when you set your minds on Jesus Christ. There is power that can pull you out of your filth and your brokenness and move you to new places to form holy habits and beautiful habits so that you stop dragging around those things from our old life. That's such a beautiful phrase to me. 10, then 20, then 100, and then your whole life. Can you imagine where you're at right now, whatever it is that has been dogging you, to be free of it for the rest of your life? There is that kind of power in the Holy Spirit available to us. If we begin and we do not give up and we don't stop when we make mistakes. You take the focus off of your failure, you cling to Christ, you cling to his cross, you cling, because he didn't just die for one of your sins one of the time, he died for all of your sins, all of your sins. And the worst sin is to give up. The worst sin is to say, I will never change. This is just the way it's always going to be. Another interesting coach spiritual life, a guy named Watchman Nee, and he talks pretty extensively about what it means uh, that Jesus Christ is a friend to sinners. So uh, I, I'm not given a bunch of uh, biography from these guys' life, but he spent the last 20 years of his life uh, arrested by a Chinese Communist Party and uh, they extended his sentence. They just wanted this guy out. He, he was 
He made some mistakes in what he did, but this guy was foundational in setting up this movement of underground house churches in China that have just multiplied to millions of people. This guy was involved in that in the very early days. And he talks a lot about Jesus as a friend to sinners. If you're a person who's dealing with sin, there is not a better friend that you can have than Jesus Christ. So confession and repentance, they are these beautiful gifts available to us where we learn to fight our sin and we discover in fighting and becoming strong against our sin, uh, we begin to discover and imagine and hope and dream about, you know what, real change is possible. Maybe there is hope in this. And I didn't see it before. I didn't think so, but maybe Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners at that point. Can you think of a single instant where a person in the Gospels uh, who's involved in some kind of sin, they come to Jesus and he reacts negatively to them? Where he yells at them or turns away from them, uh, tells them what a failure, a dirty thing they are, or seems disgusted by what they've done? I, I don't find these stories in there. I do see there are stories of people he gets upset with. He gets upset with self-righteous people who don't need anything or anyone who've got it all taken care of. Thank you very much. He gets upset with people who are blind to their own need. So uh, Watchman Nee, he reminds us that Jesus is a friend to sinners. If you're a sinner, you can't have a better friend than Jesus Christ. He is a friend to sinful people. He comes running to people who are lost in sin. And he willingly enters relationship with the most disgusting of us. He wants to be our friend in our darkness and at those dark points. But then what does he ask us to do? He asks us to change. He doesn't leave us in our filth. He asks us to change and he expects change. So uh, you get these extravagant stories of forgiveness in the Gospels. And one of the ones that I love is the story of a woman who's caught in adultery. And these Pharisees and religious leaders, they're trying to set Jesus up to get him to say the wrong things so they can have a, a list of things that they can say, hey, he's done this. This is where he broke the law. So here's that story. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. This is from John 8, if you want to look in the Bible. Where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and then said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write. Right in the dirt with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, 
If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. The focus had been on this dirty woman and trapping Jesus. And with a question, with a question, suddenly people begin to look at their own brokenness and their own... They had been blind to it before. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The only person there who had the right to throw the stone was Jesus himself. And he doesn't do it. He does it. Can you see the heart of your Savior? But he expects change. Go now and leave your life of sin. He expects change. See, one of the wondrous things about our King, Jesus, is that he knows how to deal with people's sin. My sin, your sin, sins from the past, sins we haven't committed yet. Jesus Christ knows how to deal with sin. And some of the greatest sinners that we read about in the Gospels were the apostles themselves, Jesus' closest disciples. So you have this story in John 21. I won't quote it or go there. But basically, it's an appearance of Jesus after uh, the resurrection. They're on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is there, and he's cooking fish on a fire. And there's this dialogue, and the boat's out there. And Peter, what, we know what had Peter done at this point. He denied Jesus in the most uh, damning kind of way. Um, and one would think that when you had done someone dirty at that level, and you see that person again, you hightail it the other way. If I, have, if I come face to face with the person, I know, and everyone else knows, I have done that person dirty. I've done them wrong in the worst kind of way. You would think the tendency would be to run for the hills the other direction. What does Peter do? He can't even wait for the boat to get in. He jumps out of the boat and runs up to Jesus because he knows that Jesus is a friend of sinners. If there's anyone who knows what to do with what I have done, with what he has done, it will be Jesus. Jesus will know what to do with this. And Jesus does. And Peter's healed. He makes a V-line toward Jesus Christ because Peter knew that Jesus would know what to do with what he had done. Jesus is a friend of sinners. He is the best friend you could have in dealing with your sin. So one of my hopes as a, as a preacher as well, 
for the discipleship that we're learning to do, learning how to love each other better, not just so we can have uh, these glowing relationships that are, you know, make us comfortable, we feel apart, those are good things, but that we are actually transforming into becoming more like Jesus in the way we think, in the way we act, the way we treat each other, that we actually are becoming more like Christ to one another. And one of the things that we are called to do is to be priests for each other. Um, my hope is that we grow in holiness to a point where you can become a friend to sinners too at a whole other level. And some of you are really good at this already, and there are still steps that you can take and get better at this. Um, that you were so formed in the character of the Lord in His image that you become safe for people to begin to trust, trust you with their stuff. Because no one wants to share their stuff. We're, we're pretty reserved about what, who and when and the circumstances around sharing our stuff. In fact, in our culture, especially for guys, you, just, you have stuff that you never share and never comes to see the light of day ever. And yet it's a tremendous burden to us. And we feel the weight of it. And we feel the dirtiness of it. And we never have clarity in fighting against it or the forgiveness that's available to us. But over time, if we become a people who take our priestly responsibility uh, more seriously, we become formed in the image of Christ, people will seek you out, and they will begin to share things with you. And you can help them find steps of repentance. Without help from the Lord and the Lord's people, see, without that kind of intervention of priestly work, cycles of sin and vice in your life they will largely go unaddressed, and they just keep there and happening. They will just keep repeating themselves over and over again. Hey, I'm going to pause the sermon a minute. Can I have all you kids come up here? You kids, come up here to Mr. Calvin up here. Will you come up here and see me a sec, just up front? Come on, come up here. I'm so happy to see you guys. Brindley, over here, over here, Brindley. Come here, you guys. Can we huddle up? Huddle up. Huddle up. How was Bible class? I'm still talking away in here. I'm, I'm trying to keep everyone, everyone excited and informed. Can I just say a prayer for you guys a minute? I'm so excited that you guys are in our church. I'm going to say a prayer for us. Lord, I thank you for these young people and the life that they represent for us and our hopes that we have because of the energy and excitement and being able to form and help teach uh, these young people and help them uh, grow to love you, Lord Jesus. I just pray a blessing on these children and the families that they represent for all of those who are involved in teaching and discipling here at the Eugene Church of Christ. I thank you for this gift. I just wanted a moment to acknowledge what a beautiful thing you've given us, Lord, in these young people and these beautiful lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, kiddos. Thanks for coming up here. Sorry. Some things are just so good. You got to stop, and you just got to say thank you, Lord Jesus. What beautiful lives. All right, I've just got a couple things left, and then we'll be done. Does this look familiar to any of, you, any of you? Does anyone, does this look, don't raise your hand. Does this, does this look familiar to you? 
the cycle of sin. A particular sin happens in your life. You feel guilt. In your guilt, you feel isolated and alone. That leads to this place of self-loathing. You have enemy voices that come in at that point. You're a dirty, no good, da-da-da-da-da. And the self-loathing gives to this point of hopelessness. And hopelessness, and then the sin in that place, it inevitably repeats itself. There's a cycle that goes on with this stuff. And without priests coming in, without people who are bringing Jesus Christ to us, uh, without what happens in our discipleship, in our teaching, in our relationships, if we don't intervene in people's lives and you don't invite people into your life on that level, these cycles will just keep continuing and they'll go on for year after year after year after year. And I've got this. I can do it alone. It's just too embarrassing to ask for help. I can't. And so this cycle of sin. But when we become more like Jesus, not in word but in truth, in the, the true oneness of who we are, we have power as his priests to come in and help people break these cycles. Help people break these cycles and uh, help have people help us break these cycles in our own lives. So here's a section I call tips for priests. If you're going to be a priest in someone's life, here's some things you need to do. You need to be safe for people. If you're not safe for people, uh, people are not going to come to you, probably. But... Uh, uh, what that means at a minimum is maintaining strict uh, confidentiality. You don't use people's stuff in a way to have something against them. Uh, you keep those confidences. You're not going to harm people. Uh, and also I would say keep in mind that uh, receiving someone's confession, there's an art to it. Uh, and then we provide concrete help. So, slides are frozen. Do we have someone in the sound booth or someone can run there? Uh, nope, somehow slides got deleted again. I'm sorry. All right, I had some great slides. I'll try to put them up last week. I don't know what happened. I blame Dylan because I don't want to blame myself. Okay, provide concrete help with check-ins and accountability. If you're going to be a priest and you want to help someone, okay, say someone has a cycle of some kind of lust or something that they're dealing with, and that behavior presents itself on a Friday night, you give a call Friday night and you check in. Hey, what's going on? How are things going? How can I be praying for you? Uh, concrete help. And it's just those little check-ins sometimes that can break a cycle that's there. Uh, number three, don't offer misplaced kindnesses. And this is a tough one for us. It's a tough one for us nice, friendly Christians. Uh, what that means is Jesus, you know, he accepts everyone who comes to them. He accepts them. But he never tells someone something's okay that's not okay. Have you ever felt tempted to do that? If someone is 
their conscience is engaged and the Holy Spirit's touching them, uh, so much so that they're affected to the point that they're actually seeking out help. They're looking for hope. And when you downplay or poo-poo the severity of sin, when you say, oh, it's no big deal, God doesn't care about that at all, just take care of yourself. When we, stu- when we say stuff like that, trying to be kind, it's a misplaced kindness because it robs people of hope. See, like in John 8, that story that we looked at, Jesus is clear that he expects change. He expects us to change. Sin is a big deal. And then uh, when, your help, when people need your help and you're talking about these things, both you when you're confessing and you as a person who is trying to help someone say they're confessing, uh, you've got to call a spade for a spade. Do you know what I mean when I say that? So you know what euphemization is when we euphemize something? We say a word and we change the vocabulary to try to shield or protect ourselves from the scale of it, for, from... Um, it somehow lessens the gravity of the reality or the situation. So an example of this would be the, in World War II, the SS, when they're making reports from concentration camps, they would say, we processed 10,000 units today. No, we murdered 10,000 people. See, euphemization somehow takes away from the gravity of that situation. So... Um, there's a reason why abortion care providers, they will use language like POC or mass or cell cluster and never use words like unborn baby or child, things like that. That's euphemization going on. But when you're dealing with sin, you need to be able to name it. If it's anger, it's anger. Envy, envy. Greed, greed. Gluttony, gluttony. Lust, lust. Call it for what it is. The more also uh, that we grow in Christ-likeness, the more unshockable you will become as, as a priest in someone's life. Uh, and there's reasons for this. First of all, you realize your own capacity for sin and your own need and your own dirtiness apart from what Jesus Christ has done for you. You become unshockable in that sense. Um, Jesus was never shocked or surprised by people's brokenness in their sin. Um, And further, I think, you're not shocked because you realize who the true enemy is. It's not this person who's got the courage to finally share some of their stuff. There's an enemy there who is going nuts and feeling pretty helpless and powerless when a person has the courage to confess a sin. Because when you can name those sins, suddenly the power they have over you, it's cut in half, or maybe even more than that. When you can call a spade a spade and you share that with another godly priest in your life, priest, person. Um, And further, I think the Lord helps us as we become more like him. uh, We begin to see people like Jesus sees them. And uh, he drops the stone and doesn't want to condemn that woman either. That is his heart, and that heart becomes our heart. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and as you grow in Christ-likeness, you become a better friend of sinners as well, and you will become a person 
who can give them hope because you can concretely help them make steps to begin to change some of these things uh, to trust in the Lord. And finally, the final piece of advice I have is uh, silently pray for them during a confession. If someone's sharing some heavy stuff with you, just don't distract or anything. Just be silently praying. Lord, help them. Help them get this off their chest. Help them see, Lord, give me the words I need, but don't make it about me. Don't make it about yourself with us. Just, just silently pray that the Lord will help that person get out what they need to get out. And then after that kind of time has, has gone, don't just be like, good job, a little pat on the shoulder. and You stop and you pray with them. You do that. And if it's right in the Holy Spirit, you pronounce forgiveness. And you're like, what, what are you saying? I'm saying that I think that we have special authority in Jesus Christ to help move people from this place of stuckness and shame to a place where they're ready to go and try again. I, I want to break this. I'm going to go again, Lord. And you help them do it. And we have authority in Christ to help each other in these things as a priest. So, last slides here. What is the result of repentance and confession? Why is this stuff so good? Number one. Number one or number two? First is forgiveness. The Lord forgives us from our repentance and our confession. The first one is forgiveness. The second is this, freedom. Freedom. He frees us, sets us free. So that is our, Rob or Ron, you can come up here. That is our uh, invitation for us. Consider the gift that you've been given in repentance and confession that leads to your forgiveness, that leads to freedom in Christ. And particularly consider your role of what you can become in Christ to be a priest to someone, a brother or sister in need, to help them grow and continue on in this journey of discipleship that we live. So if you have needs for prayers uh, for the Lord's church, from the Lord's church, if you have needs to put the Lord on in baptism, uh, those are all things that we love to do here in this place. So come forward and see me and talk to me about those as we stand and sing together. And be always pure and good Would you walk with him Within the narrow road Would you live for Jesus And be always